Hey, what's up, everybody? You're listening to Cannabis Karaoke, where we ask you to grab the mic and tell your story. Get inside info from today's most interesting cannabis pioneers, and from the first note to the end of the song, listen up as you get to hear the stories of success on Cannabis Karaoke. Welcome back, people, to another episode of Cannabis Karaoke. Man, we've got a hot fire guest this morning with us, uh, Steve Ernst. He's the director of business development for Viridian Capital. And, you know, if you're in the cannabis space or wanting to be in the cannabis space or looking at the cannabis space, if you're not talking about the financial components of the cannabis space and the potential for investment, I must get asked a million times a week, like, where can I get in? Well, hopefully in this next 45 to 50 minutes, um, if I don't totally mess it up, Steve will give us the direction and the understanding of what does it look like in the cannabis market today in finance. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. So, you know, I always kind of start the show off a little bit around, you know, explaining for me or anyways, like the listeners that we have, it's like, why cannabis? Like what? It's a white hot industry. Everybody knows it. Um, why did you choose to to kind of leave what you were doing on a much larger scale. And it might be helpful for the listeners too, to give them a little bit of a background on what you used to do. And then what kind of motivated you to jump into this frenetic space, especially around capital? Sure. It's a great question, Danny. Uh, So my journey into cannabis was for two primary reasons. I'd say there was a a heavy uh, social component, uh, but also a heavy career component. So from a social component, I always have kind of inherently knew that cannabis was a much safer and more sustainable alternative uh, from a you know recreational or relaxation perspective. Uh, yeah, I saw all my friends back in Chicago, you know, heavily drinking, uh, and I was always the one who was like, "Hey, let's go, you know, <laughs> get some cannabis instead." And uh, you know, people who are drinking are always getting in, in fights and terrible hangovers and unproductive. Uh, and I always knew that there was kind of a large gap between the perceived risk uh, and the actual risk with this plant. The the second reason was more of a from a career perspective. Uh, I was working at, at J.P. Morgan, so I've been in the, the capital markets for over a decade now. Uh, I was on the wealth management side, so advising some of the the wealthiest families in the country uh, out of out of Chicago. And I started getting questions uh, about cannabis. Uh, I knew that this was going to be an, an emerging field and that uh, it was very likely headed in one direction, but, but I didn't know how. In addition to that, I was kind of looking around and I had a fairly quick rise up at J.P. Morgan. And, you know, the guy next to me, his name was, you know, uh, you know Dick, and he was 88 years old and <laughs> falling asleep at his desk. And I'm like, you know, the, the, I basically have to work here for another 30 years to try to move up the ladder where I saw an opportunity in cannabis to, to come in, work really hard, uh, and become a thought leader and a perceived expert, which I don't think I could have done in the same way in a, in a more mature industry. What, <clears throat> when you start looking at the space and you start looking at people's valuations and kind of how people are raising money, the structure of money, the frenetic energy around the money in this space and how people are investing when you guys were, when you were first kind of dipping your toe in the space, you know, having worked in a, a traditional finance atmosphere where things, I don't want to say the, the market is stable, but there's more predictability. There's more, you know, kind of known hurdles that, that would present themselves. What were, what were, what are some of the things that you got that you run into when you're start trying to have a conversation with a potential person. Um, and I, I obviously I, I know the sensitivity of, of what you know versus what you can tell us is great. Sure, but, sure. but what about, are you, were you completely surprised at some of the things that were, were kind of on the table when you first started? Uh, absolutely. The, the cannabis industry, uh, especially when I entered, I made my first investment in the space in, in 2015. And, uh, you know, I kind of knew that the cannabis industry would continue to grow and evolve. Uh, I didn't know how then necessarily. So uh, when I came into this space, my first investment was into a group called Canopy Boulder. Uh, and I liked that it was diversified and I could invest into you know, 15 to 20 different positions because, it, you know, especially in 2015, it was the wild, wild west. You know, it, there was nothing historical to go on. So it was really just 
all the future? And was it a team who could build something that was going to benefit uh, or add value to the cannabis supply chain going forward? So uh, learned a lot by jumping in and uh, starting to mentor companies from you know, the angel investing round, the, you know, that, that, that startup phase. Uh, so that was uh, kind of how I entered into the space and uh, have learned uh, an, an immense amount through that ecosystem. Uh, the second part of your question, I believe, was more on the valuation side of things. Just, you know, so, how, how were people coming to you when they were talking about, you know, wanting to get an investment? Uh, from all different angles. Uh, I mean, at, you know, at Viridian, we see a thousand business plans a year. Uh, I've, you know, looked at hundreds and hundreds of business plans for the last four years in cannabis. I mean, you get it. <laughs> you get it from all angles, man. I, I'll never forget one of the first uh, investor uh, you know, founder meeting I went to was up in uh, Ashland, Oregon. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it was a guy who literally found his investor on Craigslist. Uh, he flew out, they came out, and I just sat there. And I mean, I watched these guys argue to the point where they almost got into a fist fight. <laughs> I mean, it was such a, they were, they were just on such different pages. And, uh, you know, cannabis has everything from, you know, from something like that, which is obviously you know, wildly unprofessional to you know, deals like Canopy and, and Acreage, right? Where, you know, we're talking about major financial institutions. Uh, you know, Goldman Sachs was the, the, the joint book runner on that. And, uh, you know, you're seeing huge, very sophisticated deals uh, start to enter the space. So we're really starting to become a much more legitimate industry that institutional capital is starting to enter as a result. Do you see... Do you see how, do you have like a clear path? Uh, you know, at what point can you begin to wrap your head around where something's going to go um, when it comes to, to the market? Because, you know, being in the market as long as we have, there's been a, like a consistent and pretty, I don't want to say onerous, but intense set of changes that have come up with, you know, it's always a bench test. Like this is how you want it to work before it hits the market. And then there's the reality of how it really works. Sure, how sure. does um, how does one future proof themselves? And this is like probably like a horrible no answer question, but <laughs> how does one future proof themselves or really have an idea of God, of what's going to work and what's not going to work? Or like how are how are companies? And there's I'm sure you look at brands and testing labs, and I mean the mm-hmm. spectrum of different sure. opportunities to invest in. How are they future-proofing themselves when it comes to being aware of some of these changes? And not just in California, but – and if you're in cannabis right now, my two cents is if you're not thinking about expansion um, into other states, then you probably should start after – if you listen to this and, and think about it. What's your – what are you seeing out there in the space? How are people acknowledging the potential hurdles that are coming up? Oh, it's, a, it's a great question. So I think the, the answer, uh, is, as far as foresight goes, uh, lies within corporate development. So, uh, again, cannabis is about the future, not the past, right? So you really need the, the right team to be able to take, uh, take advantage and understand the steps that you need to take to attack whatever your target market is, right? So one of the things that we focus on uh, immensely at Viridian is that corporate development piece. We want to put people who have, you know, if you're in distribution, I want to take somebody who's been in distribution for, you know, whatever Constellation Brands or Diageo or a major multinational brand and put them in a position to help that company uh, establish and grow that footprint. So, you know, it's becoming very institutionalized and, and complex, but I think as it always has, including in the startup realm, it comes back to people, right? Who is, the man- who is the management team? Who are the people on the team that are going to take you from where you are now to where you want to be? Uh, I think a marquee example of corporate development is, again, by Acreage Holdings, uh, bringing on John Boehner, right? <laughs> uh, you want to talk about how you navigate the regulatory framework of the United States? You get the ex-speaker of the house on your team. That's a, you know, that's a really good point. I feel like when people jump into the space a little bit and they go to hire, they tend to hire nepotistically. Um, or off of close relationships, mm-hmm. where have you seen, and you don't have to list any names, but where have you seen some successes on, like you just pointed out acreage with Boehner, 
um, which doesn't always get them the best reception. Uh, I mean, I know that there were some challenges out at South by Southwest when he took the stage and they were, you know, he was kind of trying to speak his mind. And, and I think, (laughs) you know, for me, my evaluation is you almost have to have someone like that at the table in order to have legitimacy. When you approach something like that, are you are trying to give advice or ask questions of a particular investment opportunity? How much does that weigh into it? The con the, the ecosphere culture of that particular company and how they're moving forward. Uh, I I think it's really important. I, uh, again, it's the, the team is, is i mean it's the most important thing do you have the right people who can get you to the next step right you can show me a uh you know any pro forma model that you that you want to and uh tell me any narrative that you that, that you want to but at the end of the day i have to believe that the people that you have within your ecosystem are going to be able to execute on your vision so i i think that and to, to your other point as far as you know people booing john Boehner, right i think there's a growing dichotomy of ideology happening within the industry right now where old cannabis is starting to butt up against new cannabis which uh you know it's uh, they were ultimately compensated for two very different reasons i think uh the years of cannabis past people were compensated for their ability to assume risk and the years of cannabis future are going to be compensated for their ability to enter into new highly regulated markets so you know sure we can all sit here and boo john boehner for being a hypocrite uh, and spending his career on, uh, you know, becoming anti-cannabis. But at the same time, we need guys like him in order to uh, expand cannabis in the way that I think a lot of the early founders, you know, envisioned cannabis would be available and ubiquitous across markets. Uh, so I think I think you have to have a mix, and, and ultimately it, it just comes down to having the right folks on the train. You know, and it, the next question I'm going to – our statement maybe that you'll speak to is, you know – you're a hundred percent right. I mean, we, I, I feel that we ha- in order, it's almost like the, the door opener, right? Like that person is going to open door to success, mm-hmm. but how does a company deal with that pushback from the core? You know, it's such a divided group of people with the legacy of people that have either grown or sold or used or whatever they're, they feel betrayed, I guess. Can you help under? Can you help some people understand why why they should forego that feeling per se? Because it, without the help, we're not going to move forward. And sometimes you have to make considerations in order to move forward. And I, I see that being one of those considerations. How do you calm down a potential project or investment that you're going to be working on? Who's adamant against or for staying true to the base and holistic, I guess would be a good word. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think that ultimately you have to have some authenticity to your, to your brand and, uh, and your messaging, right? I mean, you look at acreage you know, acreage wasn't a, uh, you know, grower up in Humboldt uh, or, you know, the Emerald triangle somewhere, just trying to make it big. They started as a big corporate player, right? So yeah, they're going to, you know, obviously, you know, piss off some of the, the historical growers who have been doing this for, you know, 20 years and providing, you know, this, this medicine and this plant, um, you know, in, in, in the shadows. But, you know, I think that the people who are going to survive the transition uh, from tie-dyes to ties are the people who are strong enough uh, and emotionally sound enough to challenge their own core belief systems and understand that the industry is shifting and they have a valuable skill to provide, but not necessarily in the way that they always envisioned it. So it's a transition, um, but, but there's got to be, you know, the, the successful people are going to, to be able to, to make the compromise in order to try to sit down at the table with the guys like, like John Boehner, see eye to eye and see how they can work together. I think you may have just coined a phrase. Which one? <laughs> tie dyes to ties. Is that is that there something is that something being used out there, or did you just pop that I don't up? Know. I don't know. I just Man, up the top, up the I wrote top it down. Head. I was like, I got to write that one down. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's a that's a good segue into kind of my next question, and it's kind of taking it from the other angle, which is, how does a person like John Boehner come in? How does he go from tie to tie dyes? How do you see the 
the tr- the people that let's just say for sake of this discussion they were i don't want to say they're adamantly against it but they weren't necessarily a champion or pioneer for it but now that mm-hmm. it's here they're ready to play how what does that person see how are they having to make adjustments into this space which is not traditional sure sure yeah, i think it's uh both parties need each other at the end of the day, right? So what John Boehner doesn't have uh, is he doesn't have the experience or the relationships of being boots on the ground in a place like California, right? So although he's certainly, uh, you know, top of the chain, has massive exposure, I'm sure ridiculous connections from an investment and a regulatory perspective, the things that that he doesn't have are people who understand the, who the buyers are at all the dispensaries in Sacramento, right? Uh, or you know some or in in you know Nevada or any of the places that are likely you know target growth markets for acreage. So he's you know and he, ultimately he's probably not the guy at the table anyway. Uh, he's a face, right? He's a face. He's on the board. He's not as nearly as involved as I think people perceive him to be, right? They're just using his name to you know to to kind of market him. I think more more than anything. Um, but he needs to be able to, and again, not necessarily John himself, but Acreage, they need to be able to sit down and have those conversations with the people who have built relationships over the last 10 years in order to integrate into the existing and continually growing market. So I, I think the onus flies on, on both ends. And I think that the people who are most successful are the people who are going to be able to sit down, uh, make some compromises, challenge some of their own core beliefs, uh, and work together it's almost like you need an interpreter because the money, the money people, if you will, are Mm -hmm. sometimes speaking a different language than the people looking for the money. Like I I know we both have sat in meetings where we hear data from somebody or they make a statement and you're like, no, that's just, that's not really what's happening here. Um, how does like, if I'm a brand, right. Am I small, small Mm -hmm. brands, obviously, by the way, are probably not going to attract the likes of a John Boehner, but there are other types of experts out there. When you're a small brand and you get past a certain point, I mean, I have seen, as you have people start companies and jump out there with no revenue or even concept, but with just a, or with start any proof, just a concept to get funded and they've been funded. But Mm -hmm. how does a brand know when it's the time to start funding and what's the best way. And it's more specific to cannabis than traditional um, because I believe there's different triggers. Sure. Sure. It's it's a good question. Uh, So to start, so the question is just how do we, how do brands start in the industry and is it more around when do they start to raise? I think it's a combination of when and what's the best way. Like when you're ready to go for money, because mo- let's just be honest, most of these new brands have not had a chance to be a startup possibly or even raising funds on the back of a startup. So sometimes – and you, you, I know that Viridian has a threshold as far as like what they'll look at and what they won't look at. So you guys are a little bit more fortunate in that fact. But if you're a brand and let's just say put on a different hat of like the independent investor – who is going to be an angel round or maybe even friends and family. What is a brand's best path to success to get to talk to a guy like yourself eventually to be sophisticated enough to have uh, enough of enough, enough funds to be able to, to progress your company? Sure. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's a very complex answer, but it, it has to do with kind of climbing the capital ladder, right? So, uh, well, again, when I made my first investment into Canopy Boulder, I was a, an angel investor, right? It was uh, 15 to 20 companies get uh, 20 to 30 grand, which, uh, you know, as you know, as an entrepreneur, <laughs> goes very, very quickly, right? Uh, so it, it takes that financial prowess to be able to utilize resources effectively enough to continue to show uh, existing investors and new investors that you have a vision, you have a plan, you're executing on it, and you know what you're talking about. Uh, you know, Viridian is a, an investment banking group, right? So, you know, we're not angel investors, right? We're not we're not trying to, to seed somebody with fifty or a hundred grand to see if they can build something that gets enough traction, then to bring in, you know, some more angel investors. Essentially, we're more on the institutional ladder where we're starting with Series A, Series B, uh, and trying to work with companies to get them to some kind of liquidity event. So, when you're starting out early. 
that's why they call them angels, right? Uh, because it's, you know, somebody coming in and, and, and really giving you a gift uh, from an angel investment perspective. When you make that investment, you kiss that money goodbye, right? It's, uh, you know, you're not hoping, you're not asking, oh, when's liquidity and uh, are you going to pay me a coupon, right? It's, I'm the first money in because I believe in, first, I mean, you, right? You don't have anything. Uh, you don't have a brand when you're just out there raising capital, trying to, to get them enough money to, you know, buy packaging, uh, I will say from a branding perspective, I think it's becoming much more challenging in the industry to start a business because you have just a lot more barriers to entry as the, the industry continues to uh, institutionalize. So, you know, back in the day in Prop 215 in California, I mean, you could go up to Humboldt, you could buy a jar of extract for 500 bucks and go to, you know, uh, Whole Foods and you know, buy some ingredients, infuse some cookies and sell them into a dispensary. Cost of capital to start. I mean, you're talking about a thousand bucks gets you, gets you going. <laughs> not, not the case anymore uh, in, a, in a regulated market. Now we're talking about, you know, tobacco alcohol rules. You want to start a brand, you got to get licenses, you got to get permits, you have to have a manufacturing facility, uh, you have to get lab testing, which is, can be very expensive. So, you know, brands were much easier to start and bootstrap in, in the early days. Now, I don't know, I don't want to peg a specific number on it because it's very market dependent, but you've got to start with, I'd imagine at least six figures to be able to just put the pieces in place to sell one product. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, would you agree that a year in cannabis is what exponential would you say? Like uh, dog. Beer. <laughs> so yeah. Right. One to seven. Like yeah. if you've made it a year, it's like you made it seven years and not only did yeah. you make it seven years, but the person behind you has to, is never going to probably catch up. Like the brands that you're seeing starting to emerge now, seeing a lot of like celebrity endorsed brands starting to come on market and they're partnering with some of the bigger MSOs uh, and firms to facilitate those things. So you're seeing, you're starting to see this shift from to your point, getting a batch of oil and going and buying some cookies and just infusing them to becoming a little bit more of it's it not even becoming it it is more of a regulated space that automatically kind of shifts the opportunity for people to enter you you made a couple statements around some words i always try to be clear with the listeners so that anybody that's not educated in whatever we're talking sure. about we can kind of help educate them so can you do Absolutely. me a favor and and not, without trying to get too remedial just break down like you know, angel investors, you know, friends and family, angels, and then the series rounds and kind of what those dollar amounts look like. Because, and it, you don't have to get, like I said, it doesn't have to be a full lesson in the breakdowns, but I think people would be interested to know. I know I've heard people come to me and say, Hey, I want to look for investment. And I'm like, what round are you in? They're like, uh, raising money round, you know? So if you don't mind, impart a little bit Absolutely. of guidance on some of our listeners. Absolutely. So, you know, then that's really the, the role of an investment banker is to guide somebody along uh, a capital cadence that ends up in, in liquidity, right? And making your shares and all of the things that you're trading, you know, money for shares or debt, uh, you know, worth cash again at the end of the day. So that ladder starts with friends and family, right? So you, you call people, you know, who've known you for a long time, because again, it's trust in the entrepreneur, right? When you're first starting a business and you've got a pitch deck and a dream, uh, you know, it's gotta be someone who trusts you and knows you. They're betting on you, nothing else. Right. Uh, and that changes as you get traction. So in the beginning, your friends and family round, you know, maybe you're raising 50 or a hundred grand. I mean, I uh, was with a, a group in, in New Orleans and, you know, they're very successful entrepreneurs, uh, seems like from some wealthy backgrounds and, uh, they raised $5 million in, in friends and family. So, it's a wide range and it really just depends on the amount of resources that you need to just build what uh, I refer to as a minimum lovable product. So uh, the Silicon Valley term is minimum viable product, but you want to put something out there that people are at least going to love, uh, hold on to buy uh, and ideally uh, continue to repeat buying. So that's your, that's your friends and, and family round. Then you move into your angel round, right? Uh, and angel is basically just, uh, you know, very wealthy people, uh, what's now, uh, called an accredited investor, which essentially means they make over 250 grand a year or their net worth is above a million dollars. Uh, and having folks like that who then say, okay, you've built something, you've got a little traction, maybe you have a product I can hold in my hands, 
uh, maybe have a website or a service that I can click through and actually uh, do something with. And they say, okay, I'm going to you know, put some more capital. In. Uh, and from a range perspective, again, it's very wide, right? I mean, you, you see angel invest investing rounds uh, from, you know, whatever, 50 grand all the way up to, again, you know, multiple millions, millions of dollars. The pre-seed ranges are really just whatever m amount of money you need to create your minimum lovable product. After that, you move into your series round. So then your series A, B, C, D, E, whatever, um, maybe some bridge rounds in between. But your, those series rounds, that is to facilitate growth capital, right? So that's saying, hey, I've got this minimum lovable product. People are using it, but I need infrastructure. I need a sales team. I need um, you know, a, a new buildings or offices or uh, equipment uh, in order to scale my production and my distribution. So it's about consistently using the right tools, raising the appropriate amount of money so that investors every, at every round uh, continue to see the valuation of their investment go up and you're continuing to fund the business uh, with what it needs and not uh, frivolously spending uh, exorbitant amounts of money that, that you don't need. So it's, it's not a simple answer, right? Uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about capitalism, which uh, I consider to be the Olympics of money. So everybody wants money, right? Uh, this is the fastest way to create wealth. And that's why it's so incredibly nuanced. When, when some, I know uh, when people are looking for capital or they're looking to raise money and, and, you know, it's an uncomfortable position to be in. I look at, there's like really two or maybe three types of people on the way they handle money. There's people that look at it as a, as a value of currency and understand that currency, but also understand that their options are currency, their stock is currency, their networking is worth got currency. And then you have people that are just timid of raising money at all necessarily, like, or they feel guilty, like, or they feel like they're a failure because they have to raise money. How do you not, and again, this is like for the bear, I'm, you know, some, some of the listeners are not sophisticated investors. And a lot of the questions I usually get around investment are people that want to do something, but don't know how to do it. How, sure. what as an, like, let's just say the person's made it through their rounds and they're now sitting in Steve's office. Mm -hmm. What kind of relationship to capital do you look for with that particular team around how, you know, everybody's got their perspective of how much has been on marketing or how much has been on staff or technology mm -hmm. or whatever. But there's some people that you see that glint in their eyes that they know as soon as they close that round, there's a party coming on the backside of that round. How do you sniff that out so that you don't get somebody that's just irresponsible that can put up a good game, but that's irresponsible mm -hmm. once they get funded? Sure. I, I think that it ultimately comes back down to experience, right? Uh, it's much, much easier to get investment when you have already successfully done something before. So when we look at management teams and I see somebody who's had two exits before this huge feather in your cap, right? Because as an investor, I want liquidity. That's the, that's the goal, right? Of course, I want to support the, the, the team and the vision and the entrepreneurs and, and it's exciting. And, uh, you know, I love all that stuff. Uh, but the main goal is to eventually receive money back from the money that, that I give. So when I see somebody who's ha has that experience, I'm much more likely to, to place capital. And I would advise entrepreneurs who, you know, if you don't know, if you, if you haven't done this before, find an advisor, uh, you know, give, you can give a percentage of your company, you can give up, a, you know, a whatever quarter point, half point, full point, depending on, you know, where you are in your life cycle of your company. But if you can get somebody on the team who can advise you on how to structure this, even having that person on your pitch deck, and saying, you know, wow, you know, you've got a, an investment banker who's taken, you know, two companies uh, public before, or has worked in M&A for 10 years. You know, it, it's, it provides a lot of confidence to the investor to say, this person is just going to raise a couple million bucks, have some, you know, a great party, enjoy networking for the next two years and close up shop, right? So uh, I think it does come back down to the team. One of the, the next question I'm going to ask you is nothing to do with what we've just spoken about. It's right, actually kidding. more of like, it's actually more of, uh, I want to hear what you have to say about it. So typically wall street guys have not been people that smoked weed or consumed cannabis. Mm -hmm. How, mm. how does the relationship to cannabis impact the traditional office mentality around what up until now has been considered a taboo drug, 
how is that, you know, how do you mix cannabis and finance? How does, how does not necessarily Steve per se, but how does a financial representative go into the market of cannabis? I'll tell you what, if you're sitting at a table and, and that joint comes to you and you don't smoke that joint, it's going to be a little weird. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, you know, I think that cause you're cannabis out, like you're not, there's no secret you're using cannabis. They know. It's, I think it's a misconception. And, and the reason that it's a misconception is, so I'm licensed with, with the SEC, right? So I have to get everything that I do cleared by my broker dealer. So historically, there has been such uh, an incredible stigma around cannabis that it really has never made sense for any financial professional or attorney or you know CPA or anyone who's regulated by a board that's likely conservative and uh, is not going to be understanding of the, con- the consumption of this particular substance, it doesn't make sense to ever declare that you're, you're consuming cannabis. I mean, I had to hide in the shadows for, you know, 10 years and, you know, nobody would have ever known that I, that I consume cannabis. Obviously I've been in it for almost you know, five years now and <laughs> the Google Steve Ernest cannabis, it's going to pop up, which kind of at least temporarily ended my chances of <laughs> going back to wall street, which is uh, totally fine. But I think there's many more financial professionals who consume cannabis than people think that there are uh, as, as a result of having to, you know, avoid punitive measures. Yeah. Because, you know, up until now, you know, even if you were in a traditional business, you weren't necessarily even cannabis out then. And, you know, I had similar reaction to when, you know, the LinkedIn profile changes to cannabis, all of a sudden you get hit from both sides. You get from people going, you're the biggest idiot in the world. What are you thinking to, wow, how do I get in? Right. It's such, it's such a crazy, um, set of circumstances that happen once you kind of are forward with your cannabis use. I mean, it, it's there's the questions being asked on little league fields. I'll just leave it at that. So yeah, yeah sure. I want to kind of get a little bit salacious right now. I know I promised Ooh, I wouldn't, I know right, I promised I right. wouldn't get crazy, <laughs> but there was a bit and, it, and I usually don't talk about things on the show that time date us, but good gosh, there was a bomb that dropped today. Bruce Linton, Canopy Growth, co-CEO, claims he was fired. What? No. What is going on there? Well, uh, I actually have not. Uh, did have I get you? Uh, you did get me on that Ooh. one. No, I haven't uh, caught up my my daily news. I usually do that in the, in the evenings. But uh, obviously, big news. Uh, I, I don't know the you know validity of it, obviously. But at the same time, at some point, the person that takes the company from nothing up into something is likely not the person who's going to take it from something into a global market leader, right? So you see this, this change up in boards and executive teams all the time. So think of it like this. Think of uh, J.P. Morgan, right? Uh, it was sort of by J. Piermont Morgan in, I don't know, 1800-something. It's run by Jamie Dimon now. There's not a single person as a result of obviously being one of our 150-year-old financial institution, you know, who was on that original team. And that original team may not have even been the right people to, to take it to what it is now, where there's 270,000 employees. So as we continue to see the consolidation in the cannabis industry, you are undoubtedly going to see shifts at the top, uh, as, you know, as well as throughout the entire hierarchy of, of companies. So uh, I don't know the reasons why, but uh, just on its face, it doesn't surprise me. And, and, you know, I, I, I want to dovetail that. Yeah, it's, it's in reading, it's been kind of hopping around the space, obviously. I mean, Canopy Growth, for those that are listening, is probably one of the first big moves, like with Constellation Brands putting, what, $4 billion into them? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, a, that was a big story then, and I think that's a good point. I, I want to I try to, like, get a little bit more out of you about, because founders, right, there's this term called founder syndrome, and it tends to be the cancer that kills a company if they are not forcibly removed. How does one have their ego in check to realize that there's a bigger picture and, but at the same time, know when to pass that baton? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think it's so founder, uh, dependent. I mean, you want to, you know, look at, uh, Uber with, uh, was it Travis Klavanek or I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but 
uh, you know, obviously built one of the biggest companies of, of this generation and was ousted, right, as, as, as CEO. So I, I think you have two options. I think you have the, uh, the, the foresight to sit down at the table and have positive negotiations with the people who are ultimately going to take over uh, and do the things that you might not be capable of or the alternative, which is you get, you get pushed out. Uh, which you know I would imagine is uh, not as beneficial of a of a way to go. So uh, I think it's important to talk to your investors, uh, and you know as it becomes more institutional, your you know your board of advisors, your your general partners of the funds that are invested into you, and make sure that you're aligned with with your values and and have those very transparent and and open conversations. Which again, much easier said than done. I mean, you know, you're you're a founder. It's your baby, man. It's just like you, you, you give in blood, sweat, tears of your whole life to this thing, right? So there's a huge emotional component there uh, that you have to, to get through. So, you know, I don't think there's a, a simple answer there. Um, but, you know, again, it's challenging your own core belief systems and, and, you know, asking yourself important goals, such as what do I want to get out of this, right? When I started this, what did I want to get out of this? Did I want to get, you know, be worth 10 million bucks, right? Or not, you know, not have to work anymore, be able to start my own venture capital fund or, you know, philanthropy fund, you know, what are your goals and, and how are you achieving them with the group of people that you've decided to work with? How does, how does somebody like the, you know, obviously Bruce did not start in his garage, like with uh, an idea, I assume, I'm, I'm assuming they were fairly well along when they started going, but how does one, you almost have to go in with the mindset, right? When you start a company that, what I don't think enough people ask that question that you just mentioned, which is what do you want to do? I always liken it to a six-year-old saying they wanted to be a firefighter. And it's like, that's great, but there's a lot of in between that needs to take place in order for you to become a firefighter. How does, what's the best advice you can give somebody? If you were able to like give a pre founding a company advice to somebody or to our listeners around what's the mindset, how do they reverse engineer? What would you give them? advice around? Good question. So I think I learned a lot of this in uh, my, my wealth management days back at, back at JP Morgan. But, you know, when somebody comes to me and says, you know, Hey, I want to raise, you know, capital for my business. Uh, I don't know what kind of terms I can raise it at. The thing that I like to ask first and start backwards from is, you know, what are your goals? Uh, you know, you want to end up with 5 million bucks at the end of this thing. Okay. Well then let's structure uh, a capital cadence with that beard in mind. Right. Um, you know, what are your goals? It's, uh, there's an interesting relationship with the utility of, of money that people have. So at a certain point, money begins to actually uh, detract value from, from people's lives. And I think people get so caught up in the mix of entrepreneurship and the uh, irrational exuberance of the cannabis markets that they look at a canopy growth and say, you know, oh my God, I could be, you know, a hundred million dollars, or I could be a billionaire if I do this. And you know, they get caught up in that and kind of ignore the, the you know, the core belief that they started with. So, uh, you know, again, it's, it, there's, it's an emotional component, right? And I think entrepreneurs need to take a hard look at what they're doing, how much they're sacrificing for it, uh, and what realistically they think they want or need to be happy and work backwards from there. So it's, uh, it's a, you know, a qualitative exercise that I think too few entrepreneurs are going through. Yeah, because even though, you know, you mentioned earlier, the cus- I think the the reason some brands or companies may struggle in the fundraising game is because you mentioned it earlier. If a company has got done a couple exits or completed a couple deals, then they have some feathers in the cap. They kind of almost ran the race versus this this person that's showing up as the first race. I think as a founder myself, um, you know the way that I've always approached companies that I've ran or started was. There, you should always, number one, bring people that are smarter than you around you so that you can have more stable success. And two, know when you've hit that ceiling. Um, of And have you ever had episodes where you've had a, a, a company that was coming to invest that you recognized right out of the gate or it was, an, I guess, in general, recognized right out of the gate that this current C team had yeah. hit its ceiling and the but the investment possibility was was there but in order to make that investment do what you figured it should be doing you had to replace the whole c-suite how does that mm-hmm. conversation take place and does it and then you don't have to give us examples but mm-hmm. it can be a deal killer 
Absolutely, it can be a deal killer. Uh, I'd say that what it revolves around is authenticity of communication. If I'm going to invest into a company, I say, you guys, are, you know, uh, okay, I'll invest in your, you know, maybe your friends and family round or your your Series A, but, uh, you know, you guys aren't really the Series B, Series C team. You're not going to take it public. I want to hear from the entrepreneurs what their mentality is surrounding that because at the end of the day, you can't change other people, right? It's hard enough to change yourself, right? So if you recognize that as a potential flaw in the capital cadence toward the, towards liquidity, I think it's very important to, to state that uh, and be in agreement uh, that when the time comes, we are going to look for people to, you know, uh, help guide this company towards towards liquidity, right? And you might not be the right guy. You can even write that into your uh, into your contracts, right? Uh, you know, getting a board seat as an investor and saying the board will just you know decide, you know, who who remains on the executive board. You, you know, I've seen it where uh, an investor will say, "I'm on the board, you're on the board," and then one person that we select together are on the board. And if you know, we go to the Series B, and there's somebody who's a more a better fit for this for the CEO. Not to say that we don't want you to participate, because certainly you want the founder team to participate in in the capacity that adds the most value. But it also should be transparent enough to say, when the time comes, if we can find someone who can guide this company to something bigger than what we can do with ourselves, we should make that move. And being in agreement on that, I think, is uh, the best place to start. A lot of companies are formed with all the best intent. People jump in together, they're buddies, they went to high school together, college together, their wives, their wives <laughs> yeah. or their husbands are friends. Mm-hmm. And then shit hits the fan. The founder, <laughs> yeah. the founders are fighting after an investment round. What's your role in that? How do you guys calm that down and you know, what's the best advice you can give? Sure. I, I think that uh, comes to something uh, you said earlier, which is uh, nepotism, right? So a lot of times people will say, hey, I've got some great friends and, uh, you know, we all work really well together and let's see if we can combine our skills and, and make something. I think the better approach uh, is when somebody says, I have a vision of what I want to build and I'm going to find the right people in order to build this as opposed to, you know, it's bottom up versus top down, right? So I'd rather see somebody say, I'm starting with the idea and then we're going to fill the seats and, and, you know, build a team that's going to be able to execute this vision then go bottom up and say, Hey, I've got these people. I wonder what we can do together to build, uh, to, to make something work. What, what does Steve, what, what type of, uh, cannabis product does Steve use? Don't list any brands, just, (laughs) you know, what's kind of your flavor yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, I've had such an interesting journey with with cannabis. Obviously, uh, you know, being a, a consumer for many many years at this point, uh, and in the beginning of my journey, it was down to accessibility, right? Uh, so, you know, funny story. I was when I was in Chicago and I used to consume cannabis. It, uh, I actually had an asthmatic response, and what I found out you know, later on. Uh, because at one, at one point I was I was extremely disappointed because I thought I was allergic to cannabis. Turns out I'm just allergic to mold, so I was smoking mold, uh, which is a problem, right? Yeah, uh, it's hard to argue that this is a medicinal. You know, oh, the plant is so holistic, uh, but I'm sitting here, you know, dying of an asthma attack because I'm, I'm smoking mold. Uh, so you know, in the beginning, availability it was you'd smoke whatever anybody in the world could could get you, you know, periodically, right? Uh, then I moved to San Francisco, right? And I had access to the coolest, most innovative products, right? From edibles to topicals to tinctures to dabs. Uh, and I really went deep down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and I tried, you know, a little bit of, of everything. And what I found is that, uh, you know, it was kind of a bell curve. And I've navigated back to just good flour. And I, I love to just smoke good flour uh, you know, out of a, a bubbler or, you know, some kind of water piece to maybe, you know, cleaner or cool, cool down the combustion a little bit. Uh, and I found that the reason for that is what's referred to as the entourage effect. So it's the, it's the mixture of cannabinoids working in conjunction with each other uh, to provide that really pure high that I think that uh, cannabis consumers are, are so drawn to. I think when you use, you know, extracts or even 
uh, edibles, it's it's not as dynamic of a feeling and uh, of a result. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm back to flower, man. I, I love people who can grow just very high-end, you know, beautiful, fresh, terpene-rich flower. Uh, and that's, that's what it is. Is it a joint, a bong, a pipe? Like, how are bubbler, you? Man. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a double bubbler guy. I've had a double bubbler for like 15 years. Uh, I just, I don't know. It's my, it's my tool of choice. Most people don't even know what that is, but it's basically just a glass piece with two compartments for water. So it goes through water once, goes through water twice, and then you inhale. Nice. Yeah. Um, that's, my, that's my jam. When, uh, when you're at a cocktail party and you're off work and someone's sure. approaching you about the cannabis space, it doesn't even have to be about investment. What, what's your outlook on it? Outlook in regards to just where it's going. The, 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 you know, just a general 50,000 foot Mm -hmm. like viewpoint of where, you know, new States opening, new categories opening or like, so, uh, you know, it's, it's institutionalizing. So, the years of cannabis past was underground and incredibly fragmented. Uh, at the end of the day, upon legalization, capitalism drives value to consumers. They want the best quality product at the best possible price, right? That intersection of quality and price and value. Uh, and, and the goal is to, you know, give consumers as, as much value as possible. So, you know, to the chagrin of, I think, many of the, uh, you know, OG growers uh, up in Humboldt, we're going to have max standardization. You know, we're going to have corporations come in with SOPs and human resources. Uh, and it's just going to continue to expand uh, because you're going to have brands that have consistent experiences. So you're not going to have the old college brownie where someone says, hey, man, try this brownie. Uh, I'm gonna, what's in it? I have no idea. Just take a bite and then take another bite in a half hour and see what happens. <laughs> uh, you know, when you eliminate that and you say, here's a five milligram, you know, uh, you know French macaroon, right? it's like, oh, that's so approachable, right? And you're not going to have a bad experience. So it's going to continue to march across the country uh, and across the world. But one of the things that I'm, I'm noticing in the industry right now is uh, Chicago. So I'm originally from Chicago. So uh, I go back you know, fairly often, at least, I don't know, five times a year. And I'm noticing that Chicago actually has all of the components that the cannabis industry needs to continue to build itself. So when you look at the top brands um, out of Chicago, there's uh, you know, uh, Walgreens, uh, Procter & Gamble, McDonald's, right? Huge retail, huge manufacturing, huge distribution. A lot of uh, liquor, liquor distribution companies are out of there. That's what, that's what Chicago does really well. And as a result, you've quietly seen five of the 10 biggest multi-state operators headquarter themselves in Chicago. They have uh, you know, cheaper buildings uh, or cheaper real estate than Manhattan or San Francisco or LA. And they have access to, to high quality talent that is needed to build these kinds of businesses. Uh, you know, the insurance people, they've got uh, accountants, lawyers, bankers. So it's, you're starting to see the Midwest really take hold. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, but you know, New Jersey and New York uh, just kind of flubbed their, their votes. And now recreation is a question mark again. Uh, to where J.B. Pritzker in Chicago has fully legalized and said, hey, we're marching forward. Uh, I think we're going to see Chicago emerge as a major hub for cannabis. I also really appreciate them tying in the expungement of cannabis related offenses. Oh, absolutely. Which I think is a, is a thing too, that we need to really remember that there's people still doing time for the plant while we all make money and Mm -hmm. the likes of John Boehner are sitting on boards. Um, We we can't forget the reason why we came into this space was because we wanted to help people and the people that were helping people before we realized that we needed to legalize helping people, those people mm-hmm. are still paying dues. So, you know, Absolutely. that's, that's just my two cents. And I was really appreciative when I saw them pass their laws that they were incorporating that as part of it. And I'd like to see more States take that approach. So I, uh, I sit on the finance committee for an organization called the students for sensible drug policy. Uh, and on that committee, I sit with a gentleman named Chris Crane, who I have a, a huge amount of respect for, uh, been you know, an activist in the industry for, for over 20 years. Uh, and he is the president of, I think, uh, four, yeah, Forefront Ventures. Uh, he moved to Chicago, and he was very active in writing or, or helping uh, 
you know, lawmakers craft this legislation. So there are people who are extremely passionate about this, working tirelessly behind the scenes to make sure that things like expungement, uh, you know, get written into the, the legislative pieces. So, uh, you know, these, these are the activists and I think the kind of um, unsung heroes of, of the space who are really getting in there and, and sitting with the capitalists and can speak, you know, both languages like we, we said earlier. Yeah, it's. I mean, I just. I think we're just. It one year equals seven years is what we'll just go back to. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, I want to give you a chance to let people know where they can lurk you. So, uh, sure, let people sure. know your LinkedIn, your Twitter handle. Maybe throw out Viridian stuff, um, and then, you know, people. If you if you are looking for s- serious financing, um, you know, this is definitely one of the places that you should stop and at least check out. Um, and, and at least be looking at some of the investments they're making to see if you fit before you reach out. So if you don't mind, just go ahead and shout sure. out some of the social locations and then, uh, we'll wrap this up. Yeah. I'd say the best way to reach me is, uh, well, I mean, yeah, certainly on LinkedIn, Steve, Steven Ernest, again, work for Viridian capital advisors. Uh, if you go to viridianca.com, uh, we've, we've obviously got a, a website set up and we have surveys listed on the website. So, if you're looking for investment or looking to place capital or acquire a company, uh, fill out one of the surveys on the website. Uh, it goes directly to me, uh, so I'll be able to, to take a look at it. Thanks, Steve. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I learned a lot today, and I hope everybody else is enjoying this as much as I did. All right, Danny. Love you, buddy. Talk soon. Thanks, bro. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cannabis Karaoke, another kick-ass podcast about all things cannabis. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and our website, CannabisKaraoke.tv. And if you or someone you know would like to be on the show, please hit the Book Your Interview button on the right. Cannabis Karaoke, grab the mic and tell your story. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to PodConnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did. Thank you.